we need more radical common sense. I say it kind of tongue in cheek because there's things that lower healthcare costs that improve quality that we've known work for 20 years that we don't necessarily do in practice. The question is, how do we unleash latent innovation? That's Dr. Zane, president and CEO of Scan Group and Health Plan. Sachin's here to talk about their new risk-based homeless medical group, how to avoid death by pilot, leadership strategies that involve doing less, not more, and what consumers really want. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. Check out our online healthcare publication called Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com for more executive perspectives on the business of health transformation. I'm Health and Life Sciences Editor Jacqueline DiChiara. Enjoy the show. Hello again, and welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Tom Robinson, a partner in the Health and Life Sciences practice here at Oliver Wyman. Today, I'm joined by Sachin Jain, President and CEO of Scan Group and Health Plan, who was previously CEO of CareMore, the original poster child for value-based care. Sachin, you took over at Scan in the middle of the pandemic and at the peak of the outrage at the murder of George Floyd. What was it like? I think it was incredibly challenging to be really candid with you, Tom. I would say starting a new role at the scale of operating a company like Scan is challenging under any circumstance. But then imagine not having built you know, the relationships and the trust with the frontline staff, the executive team, the board, and having to do so very quickly. I think one of the most challenging parts about it was that I wasn't necessarily hired to be kind of a carrier of the status quo. I was asked to really disrupt the organization and take it in new directions. And so doing that under any circumstances is a challenge, but doing so without being the benefit of your sixth sense that arises from actually being able to bump into someone in the bathroom literally makes it even more challenging. But again, I think we've started down a great path. And it's been very exciting for the most part. And you inherited a, how would I call it, a beloved local organization. And how, how is it that you take a local culture, a local story and bring that to a broader scale? Well, that's the plan. I, you know, I think when you've got a good thing in, in healthcare, you almost have an ethical obligation to take it to more places. And so that's the work that we're doing. We are really trying to raise our own ambition levels. I think we've done a phenomenal job over our 43-year history of serving some of the most frail and vulnerable populations in California, but it's time to take our show on the road. And so we are expanding to adjacent states. We are launching new product lines. We're diversifying to serve an even more challenging the vulnerable population that we've always served, we're actually going to be launching a risk-based homeless medical group, crazy as that may sound to you. So I think we're doing kind of interesting and exciting things. And I think it really comes from that connection back to our founding mission, which was to keep seniors healthy and independent. That's what our founders wanted us to do. And you know, while Medicare Advantage is one way to do that, I think there's many other ways to do that. And part of what we're really trying to do over the next five to 10 years is diversify the ways in which we create impact in the ecosystem. And tell me more about the risk-based homeless medical group. Well, you know, the reality is, actually, I'll take you on a little journey back to, you know, Sachin Jane circa 2001. I was a volunteer at a, you know, student homeless shelter in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the one thing that stuck out to me from that experience 
was how central healthcare was to the journey of people experiencing homelessness. In some cases, it was healthcare that landed people as homeless. And in other cases, being homeless actually created a new set of healthcare conditions that people had to navigate. And the healthcare system is not tuned to treat these people with respect and dignity and care. And you know, it was something that was very formative for me and actually influenced my thinking about how we should do healthcare in this country writ large. 18 years later, I was looking for an inspirational speaker to bring to Caremore and reconnected with an old friend who's Jim O'Connell, who is the founder of Boston Healthcare for the Homeless. And literally on stage, I had one of these kind of crazy eureka moments, you know, as he was talking about his work, I thought, you know, how could the principles of managed care be leveraged to better serve people experiencing homelessness? And, you know, the principles I was talking about were things like, you know, managing the total cost of care, as opposed to managing the specific silo that you have in place. And then also thinking about hospital as a place of last resort, as opposed to kind of the primary care setting, just given the cost of actually delivering care in the hospital. And I started to think, well, what if a medical group were truly at risk for the total cost of care? Could you actually build a better mousetrap for serving people experiencing homelessness? Alongside that is this notion that how you define a problem actually influences how you solve a problem. It's one of the kind of the first things that you get taught in a political science course. And that stuck with me as well. And this notion that we've historically defined homelessness as a housing issue and a housing supply issue. And if you define something as a housing issue and a housing supply issue, you build more housing. But it doesn't necessarily get to the underlying issue, which is that many of these folks have serious healthcare problems that go alongside their lack of access to housing. And so while we continue to address the issue of affordable housing and frankly, you know, look at the root causes of how so many people ended up homeless, which I think really roots back to President Reagan's administration and the closure of so many, you know, mental health facilities at the time, you also see that we have to kind of think more creatively than we have been over the last decade. And so we are in the process of launching you know, what, what I would call a care more or landmark or aspire for people experiencing homelessness. And we're going to look to do two things. One is be a primary care medical group and take risk for these populations. We're also going to look to wrap around existing risk-based medical groups and, you know, take the, these patients who right now are assigned to these medical groups, who are enrolled in these medical groups, but who are not really designed to take care of these patients and then provide street-based medical services with an intensive focus on addiction and behavioral health, there's a world in which we could even imagine the psychiatrist as the primary care physician for some number of folks, and nurse practitioners are providing some of the other medical care that's needed. And so, again, this is a big, bold experiment. We internally, jokingly call it running into adverse selection, but it's the kind of thing that we're really excited about. And we've had some great conversations with folks in the Biden administration about you know potentially doing a demo through CMMI. And so again, it's very exciting for us. And you know, it's in line with this idea that, you know, we only live one life. And you know, I think we have to spend our life, you know, solving some of the, the biggest and boldest problems. And you know, we may fail doing it, but it's something that we're definitely going to take our best swing at. I love that you're being big and bold. One of the great frustrations I have is the creeping incrementalism in healthcare. It seems like Healthcare seems to take all decisions like their life or death care decisions, rather than just recognizing some changes are just business changes and just objectively better. 
Can you talk a bit about that and talk a bit about death by pilot and buy-in bazaars? Yeah, I mean, you call it creeping incrementalism, but as long as I've been in this game, it's always been an incremental game. And, you know, what I think you end up having, I, again, I've had some good debates with folks about this. They say, you know, it's a feature, not a bug. They say, you know, at the end of the day, and when human life is at stake, you know, you want to be thoughtful, just given the history of medical reversal and the fact that many things that we think work don't actually work. But I think we've taken that to a crazy and ugly extreme. And what, I, what I've said for years is that we need more radical common sense. I say it kind of tongue in cheek because there's things that we know work today that lower healthcare costs, that improve quality, that we've known work for 20 years that we don't necessarily do in practice. And so I think the question is, is how do we unleash the latent innovation? I mean, physicians, healthcare workers are actually largely innovative people, forward-thinking people, creative people, who somehow when they enter these healthcare organizations are socialized and trained to think that change needs to be slow, deliberate, plotting, pilot-based. And you know, there's a whole industry of consultants, no offense to present company, who've kind of made their careers on this idea of doing Kaizens and, and throwing up A4s and running improvement events, when in fact, you know, what you really need is a leader who just says, this is what we're gonna do. Some of this is related to organizational structure. I think when most people think about hospitals, they think about doctors working for hospitals. That's sort of a new phenomenon. Historically, doctors were customers of hospitals. They had choices of where they could admit their patients. And so as a result, the orientation was, let's make this as easy as possible for people to practice in these environments. And so you had things like EMRs that were just, again, radical common sense, you know, were, were delayed in their implementation, were optional in their implementation. And so you never really saw the full benefit of these things early in their histories. Now you're seeing kind of more vertical integration, but the organizational leadership model is still much more oriented around consensus-based decision-making. Let's take five, 10, 15 years to make a decision. You also see that when people divert from that, you quickly lose people in these organizations. And I think part of it is there's a lack of realization that this is a workforce that is largely intrinsically motivated, oriented around wanting to do the right thing, oftentimes being paid less than they could be paid in other settings to do similar work who are doing it out of some sense of mission. And so the task of leading mission-based organizations is one where you have to both use a dollars and cents mindset, but also lead with heart and lead with a view to what really inspires and motivates people. And I think we're doing a bad job both on the dollars and cents side, as well as on the inspirational and motivational leadership side, because we are largely, I think, taking care of people off the backs of many people's goodwill. You saw that throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, where people were literally coming to work in the absence of appropriate PPE, because that's the professional ethic that people bring to you know, the work of taking care of sick people. I think you know, we've corporatized medical care, we've corporatized large institutions, we've treated this notion of no mission, no margin, we've taken it a little bit too seriously in some cases. I mean, I'm sure you see that in your consulting work. And so again, I think these things that are just radical common sense don't happen. And so people tell when you when you propose an idea, people say, well, let's do a pilot, even if it's just the thing to do. And that's why where the term death by pilot comes from. And the buy-in bizarre notion just comes from this idea that you know, you can't get something through an institution without literally getting 
everyone bought in. And so, you know, the organizational decision models are really one where you're, you're often left wondering who's really in charge because everyone seems to have a veto over everything. And no, um, I've, got, I've, I've got, got nothing against uh, <laughs> nothing against continuous improvement, but it seems like death by six sigma black belts at times. And, and I'd love us to be able to make more of those dramatic moves. And speaking of which, and speaking of, you know, radical common sense, we're seeing a lot of out migration from our urban centers. Medicare remains a county by county program. When are we going to see virtual first MA plans? I think you've seen a couple of plans go in that direction. You know, just to clarify for the listening audience, what, what Tom's talking about is plans where, you know, it's zero copay for if you access most of your services digitally, you know, obviously making allowances for in-person visits elsewhere. It's an idea that I've been, you know, behind for several years. It's something I tried to get moving in Anthem when I was there. I think you're seeing these products. They haven't had great adoption necessarily. And I think some of that is actually pandemic related because I think almost every product became a virtual first product this last year. Scan for years has had a contract with MD Live, one of the great providers of virtual care. What you saw is that many of our provider groups, our contracted provider groups, switched to virtual Zoom-based medical care you know, in, in a matter of days or weeks. And so everything almost became virtual first. I think the question is, what does that look like going forward? You know, what are the extra tools that are going to really create value-added services for people who live kind of in places where they can't necessarily get access to care? And I think there's a number of folks trying to solve this problem. I think the one thing I worry about is how oftentimes these models miss a fundamental consumer insight about how people actually access care, which is when you get sick, nobody wants whoever's there to just be the person who takes care of you, right? When you get sick, and you have a serious illness, whether it be a cardiac need or an oncologic need, you pick up the phone and you call someone and you say, I need someone really good to take care of me. And you're not looking for whoever happens to be sitting in their undershorts, you know, beaming into your living room on MD Live or pick your favorite virtual care provider. You want the person that is available to you. And so, you know, I think, you know, you want the person who is trusted and is known in your networks and has a reputation in a particular field of medicine and care. And so I think there's a need for us to think more carefully about the true consumer experience, the true care journey, how people really access care and how we want them to access care. Yeah. And I think we need to think about the different segments of consumers. I think we've seen in our research that individuals, when given a choice, would you like to see your physician tomorrow in a week or a physician now? Most people take the choice of now. And that doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean they wouldn't get better care if they waited a day and saw their physician that knows all the history. But it, it is a consumer desire for, for immediacy. I think it was really lost by sort of the technologists who kind of entered the care delivery space is there's a belief that a lot of medical science is algorithmic and can easily be applied using AI or algorithms that ultimately drive people to the right things. And the funny thing about it is that human behavior is not algorithmic. And frankly, there's a lot of gray in the data. And a lot of times what you're looking for a trusted and experienced physician to do is actually guide you. But I wanna go back to the word trusted because that presumes that there is a belief that that person is going to be your advocate, that they're in this for you and with you. And again, I think a lot of what's happening in the digitization of care and novel care models, placing the notion of trusted physician with 
replacement player, whoever shows up to do the work on that particular day. And I think it goes against human psychology around how people need care and receive care. And so, you know, I've always been kind of accused of being a Luddite a little bit in this regard. As much as I'm technology first and avid about where we're going, I think I'm relationship first and quality of physician first and quality of nurse practitioner first, as opposed to kind of thinking that, you know, we're going to be able to lean out, you know, kind of the human element to care, which is which is where, you know, frankly, a lot of the conversation has been over the last number of years and where a lot of the investment has been. Um, well, it's easy to see why with the incredible rising costs. What do you think when it comes to behavioral health? Like, is that an area where we can see virtual care, more algorithmic care, as we were calling it a second ago, playing a bigger role? Yeah, I think one of the things you have to acknowledge is that we have a huge workforce issue. As there, you know, as there's kind of greater and greater acknowledgement and destigmatization of behavioral health issues, there's more demand for it. And you're seeing that more and more people need these services. And I think what, what we're trying to do in lots of domains of healthcare is say, well, you don't need a psychiatrist, you need a psychologist. You don't need a psychologist, you need a MFT therapist. You don't need an MFT therapist, you need a, uh, a social worker. You don't need a social worker, you need a community health worker. And so what I worry about most in this space is the devaluation of expertise. Each one of those roles can play a very significant role in addressing behavioral health issues and needs. But we have fundamentally a sorting problem in American medicine, which is we don't have a really great mechanism to determine who goes where and why. The behavioral health problem starts with a workforce issue and a sorting issue. The second piece of it is really getting to ground on the integration with primary care. And I, again, I think this is where we can actually massively expand the behavioral health workforce if you actually train primary care docs to be confident generalists. We had a piece in health affairs talking about the notion of confident generalists. You can learn 70% of a field in a few months. The, the extra 30% is what makes someone a specialist or an expert. And so the question is, is how do you empower a generalist workforce to take care of most general problems, which is how we used to do it in a different world? And I think it goes back to how we pay for care and the payment models. And if we actually pay people in ways that give them time and incentive to do specialist level care in primary care settings, I actually think you could vastly improve the quality of care delivered because a lot of where quality breakdowns happen in care is in handoffs, in transitions, in you know, specialists not talking to primary care docs, primary care docs not talking to pharmacists, pharmacists not talking to hospitals. If you're designing the care experience for your family member, you want to minimize the number of people who are involved in your care. Try to create a centralized, cohesive experience grounded in confident generalists. So it's a long way of answering your behavioral health question, but I, you know, I really do think these three themes, you know, that I articulated are are the ones that matter most. How do you fix the sorting problem? If I'm coming in with back pain, I don't know whether to go with a chiropractor, an osteopath, a primary care physician, a massage therapist. I have no idea where to go as a consumer right now. How do we resolve that? Well, I think you have to strengthen primary care. I think, you know, when you look at the data, most people don't have a primary care doctor these days. They don't have someone that they have a true relationship with. And that's a two-way thing. They don't know them and the doctor doesn't, neither party knows the other. And so some of what you, what you just you know, reference. Let's use back. Let's continue with back pain as an example. A lot of times it has to do with patient preference. I mean, you know, if I told you, Tom, partner at Oliver Wyman, hey, you've got back pain, go see the massage therapist tomorrow. You'd probably stick a finger at me and say, actually, I want to get this thing imaged and I want to go. 
Now, there's other people who, when given, given the recommendation that they get imaged, would say out loud, you know what, actually, I don't want to get imaged. I want to try something more conservative. I want to try NSAIDs. I want to try heating pads, whatever it is. And at the end of the day, it's a two-way collaborative dialogue that too often gets treated like it's a one-way conversation both ways. I think historically, the rub was that the medical profession had become too paternalistic in prescribing paths, not necessarily engaging patients. I think you're starting to see the opposite problem happen, which is Dr. Google has entered the exam room and the patient is now kind of triangulating <laughs> with Dr. Google and saying, actually, this is what I want. I think it's a collaborative conversation with a trusted person. And what, what happens when you have trust is you, you start to ease up. You start to not worry as much. You start to not trusting Dr. Google as your first authority. And again, we haven't paid primary care docs enough. We haven't created enough primary care docs. We haven't trained them to be these confident generalists. I trained as an internal medicine physician. And what I can tell you, you know, in a you know, renowned quaternary center, and you know, a lot of the way we practice medicine is you call a lot of people who know a lot, of, a lot more than you do about a lot of things. And you don't necessarily trust your instincts on things. And that, you know, that's the right thing for a certain type of patient, you know, when they've got more of a zebra than a horse, but if they've got a horse, then, you know, you've got to actually know how to handle it, know how to take care of it within the walls of your own office. That's a lot of what we need to do. And do you, do you think this, we, there's a lot of talk at the moment and I, where we started the conversation around, you know, you coming in at the time of George Floyd, we've touched on virtual care, we've touched on behavioral health. What are your thoughts around diversity, equity. Yeah, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't adequately address the issue of George Floyd in my introductory remarks because I was, I was mostly focused on the issue of just starting in that job, which, you know, which again was daunting for all the reasons we talked about. But it, you know, it also required us to take a hard look at you know, what we're doing from a health equity and social justice perspective. And you know, this is something where I give the healthcare industry a, a clear C minus because we did a really, really good job of saying the right things and talking about the right things at the time. I can't think of a large organization that didn't issue a statement, we stand with Black Lives Matter or, or George Floyd. But at the end of the day, those were statements, they weren't actions. And I think as an industry, we've been slow to take up actions in this space. And I can tell you, I know this because you know, 11 years ago, I was the subject of a racist attack by a patient. I wrote about it in the pages of the Annals of Internal Medicine. And the reason I wrote about it was because no one ever talked about racism in the course of like delivering medical care. These were just not topics that were addressed. And so I would say the medical field, health systems, healthcare organizations are years behind where they, they ought to be on these issues. I'm really proud of the team at SCAN because we looked at our pharmacy data. We looked at, we found a bunch of gaps in adherence as it relates to African-American and Latinx members with our Caucasian members. You know, we had performance variation that you know we all found unacceptable as it relates to how we care for these these members, and we literally tied our 2021 bonuses. You know, we're putting our money where our mouth is, as it relates to you know making sure that we close these gaps and that we're making sure that we are approaching health equity and and focusing on populations that need a little more TLC than others. And and again, we're also looking hard at our trust with our own employees. You know, when we look at our own trust scores, African-American employees trust have a one point lower trust score than our Caucasian employees on a five point scale. That means we have some internal cultural work to do. We have some 
challenges and some problems that we need to address. We need to do a hard look at ourselves. And so the problem I see is that we are in so many places in healthcare, more talk than we are action. And that's why, you know, when people ask me, how are we going to fix, get our, you know, navigate our way out of this big healthcare mess that we're in in this country? My answer has stopped being kind of new incentives and, and new policy innovations, because I've been fortunate to watch, you know, all those things unfold over the last 15 years and largely make not a lick of a difference. I think what we need is better leaders. We need more leadership, better leaders, more courage, boards that are willing to stand by the right things and do the right things, leadership teams that are willing to do the right things and say the right things, and take some risks to create more justice in our society and to improve care. Absent better leadership, we're going to be lost in the buy-in bazaar, you know, and trying to make everyone happy in organizations as opposed to making things right. I think that is one of the key dynamics we have to struggle with is many organizations are oriented around trying to, I would actually say it in a different way, not piss other people off as opposed to doing the right thing for patients, for members, more often than not. What we need more of than anything right now is a return to inspiration because, again, this is a workforce that is largely doing this work because of some intrinsic belief and intrinsic motivation that the work that they're doing actually matters and changes lives. And you have to manage people like that differently than, than kind of line workers. And too often, I think healthcare organizations go into this line worker management mentality, shift workers, and they manage people like that. And when you manage people like that, that's who they become. And then you know the product, which is really care for people, kind of deteriorates. And so um, I'm a big believer that you, you know, you've got to match the management style to the motivations of the people you're leading. We've largely missed the boat on that with the shifts that we've seen over the last decade or so. What I like is you're walking the talk. You've been getting more and more activists. You've been putting your incentive comp at risk. You've been getting into the front door of care by building geriatric medical groups. You've just made an investment in Monogram, the kidney care firm. You're tackling homelessness. There's a pattern of behavior here that reinforces the words. If, if you were to think even bigger, if you had all the money, time, resources in the world, and you could do anything to change the future direction of healthcare, what would that be? Yeah, so I think the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed, right? And I and so I think what we have to do is take a hard look at, you know, kind of variation in care around the country. You know, you look at things like admits per thousand, length of stay, and that variation, you know, people say, oh, most people look at that variation and say, oh, that's really interesting. Instead of, oh, there's real waste there. And then we have to kind of really start driving towards what is a, a resource efficient inpatient stay for congestive heart failure really look like? How many inpatient days do you really need versus outpatient days? But I would even take a much bigger step back and I would say, you know, how do we get into a mode where we are preventing complications from happening in the first place? We have this amazing system where, you know, if you have untreated diabetes for 40 years and you develop a need for dialysis and retina surgery, we will pay for your best retina surgeries and we will pay for your dialysis. But we are not going to pay for all the things upstream that will actually keep you out of that. And this, you know, and let me be clear, the PMPYs for people on dialysis, you know, are 60, 70, 80, 90, $100,000 a year of federal expense that's being applied to literally sustain the lives of people, which if you were to spend $3,000 a year upstream, $1,500 a year on diet coaching, counseling, behavioral health management, these little things that are going to make 
big differences for people. Getting out of the gimmick-based world of give everybody kind of the fanciest smartwatch of the day and instead get into the world of actually coaching and supporting and motivating people earlier in their lives to make better healthcare choices, then you might get to a world where we don't need ourselves as much. And I think that's one of the challenges of our industry. You know, Leba Lesson, who you, you may have known, you know, is my predecessor leading CareMore, you know, always said the problem is, is that in the current orientation, every single stakeholder in the ecosystem makes more when you are doing less well. And so we have to kind of turn that economic equation on its head. We focus a lot on the price equation in healthcare, but we don't focus a lot on the quantity of services consumed equation in healthcare. One of my pet peeves is cancer care, where we take people who have stage four cancers with horrible prognoses, and we run them to the chemotherapy infusion center to get them chemotherapy, because that's what we do in that situation. Instead of pausing and stopping and having the conversation with them and saying, what are the things that are most important to you? How do we craft a life for you in these remaining three to six months that you have and make sure it's the kind of life you want to live as opposed to running you through the medical industrial complex for what is ultimately like in 99% of cases likely to be highly futile care. We have to kind of change that equation. We have to stop doing big, huge surgeries on people over the age of 80, where we know that they're not going to have great outcomes. But Right now, the system just does this reflexively over and over and over again. And the lessons I learned at Care More, Aspire, through my time in, in the federal government, is we just need to kind of think differently about, about all of this. And to do that, we have to pick some enemies. And right now, what happens is I had a paper in JAMA about kind of the blame and shame game in U.S. healthcare several years ago with, with Brian Powers and Chris Castle. We talked about you know, and I, I've seen this uniquely because I've worked in pharma, I've worked in government, I've worked in care delivery, I've worked in managed care. It's very easy to constantly point the finger elsewhere, right? It's what it's what everyone does. It's, and it's it's a deflection mechanism to to kind of not force us to look at ourselves. We have to look at ourselves at every sector and say, how do we remake ourselves? If you're truly a nonprofit healthcare organization, your job isn't to make yourself the biggest and baddest, you know, hospital system in a geography. Your job is to make yourself unnecessary by improving the health of the community that you serve and contract yourself over time because people are healthier and they're living better lives. That's a different message and that than people you know have heard before, but I think it's the message that we need right now. It sure is. Thank you very much, Sachin. For sure. It's great, great to be with you, Tom. Follow Olive Ryman Health on Twitter at OW Health Editor and visit health.oliveryman.com for more on our industry perspectives. You're welcome to subscribe so you'll be notified when a new episode goes live. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here at Oliver Wyman Health.